0: Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowery. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, which we are moving right now to the bigger side. Um, The barbell open, which is going on right now. You have until Sunday evening at midnight to put in your snatch. So first week is snatch. You still have time. You can sign up if you're doing Olympic weightlifting before Sunday night. And then next week is clean and jerk and then powerlifting. So you still have a little while to join powerlifting if you're a powerlifter, So Awesome.
2: Uh, this is Dr. John Mike. I'm a professor at exercise science, writer, speaker, strongman competitor. Um, and I am on, tentatively, I'm on the St. Louis – tandem hide and seek team and
0: i think we're
1: in the semi-finals so. <laughs>
0: tandem hide and seek <laughs> nice <laughs> so phil tell me about the yeah. the gym i mean I, i'm surprised you moved to their side because you had the one side built up so nice
1: well i needed more room so oh, oh mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah we ran out of room so the other side is about uh, it's roughly twice the size so yeah we got everything it's about three quarters the way moved um And that's going in. We're finishing the bottom part, which will be open. That's just going to be nothing but chin-up bars and just floors of mats. Um, And then there's going to be a space that's 110 feet long by about 8 feet wide to run sleds and yokes and stuff like that. Indoor stuff, yeah. So we're able to do that uh, in all weather. Right. Because that slows down in the winter when we can't go out and take over the street. And then upstairs directly above the new part of the gym is... Going to be batting cages and fielding for, uh, you know, sporting events. Right.
0: That wasn't even part yeah. of the original plan, was it?
1: No, that's that's going in now though. So that's yeah. in the in works now. Cool. But, yep, that's that's what's happening. All right. So.
0: Uh, we've got a little bit of news, everybody, and uh, our topic of the day. And John doesn't even know this yet, but I can throw this kind of stuff at these guys, and they're fine. Um, we're going to talk about bringing up lagging muscles, bringing up lagging nice. body parts. Nice. Um, but uh, on with the news here. Strength and muscle sport news. I have one piece uh, on genetics and gene doping and that sort of thing. And John has a piece on caffeine. Do you have that in front of you, John? Or
2: I do. I do. Okay, yeah.
0: sweet, sweet. All right. So this first one is from Tabitha Paulidge from onscience.com it's a blog it's the dna episode uh, apparently there's been a big spat over the hot field of epigenetics and if people aren't familiar uh, the reason the human genome project when it mapped the human genome right your your blueprint the reason it didn't like quite pan out to cure disease and you know help athletes and do all these different things is because parts of the blueprint get turned on and off, right? And that's called epigenetics. So I'm not going to bore you with histones and methylation and all these processes by which this happens, but the point is epi means upon. So there's a system upon your genes that kind of selects which ones are really getting activated. And that's why just having the map didn't, you know, wasn't the cure-all, end-all, be-all thing. Anyway, there's been this big spat recently. Uh, Apparently, there was a, an article that came out uh, in the New Yorker, I think. Uh, and there was a lot of controversy because I think the guy was m- misinterpreting some of what epigenetics is or can do or whatever. But there's other parts to this that I want to get to. So I'm going to skip to some other parts of this article here. <clears throat> One is called Americans Don't Want to Be Better with a question mark. It says the media treatment of the, uh, the new Pew study. There's been this new um, survey. That most Americans are freaked out by nascent biohacking techniques for human improvement, emphasize people's fears of gene editing uh, and designer babies rather than other possibilities. So, in other words, what they did was they asked some people about, you know, what's it like to enhance ourselves. In fact, when I was a doc student, I did a, an independent study called The Ethics of Enhancing Ourselves, And so I looked into the future of gene doping. And honestly, I was writing stuff about gene doping all the way back in the late 90s, uh, which was very early on. But anyway, the point being here, it says um, Pew asked about implanted brain chips to enhance concentration and information processing. Honestly, that sounds fascinating to me. You know, be super smart Uh, and transfusions of synthetic blood to increase strength and stamina. It says 4,700 survey respondents were split almost evenly on whether or not they would want gene editing, even for something like to reduce a baby's risk of serious disease. Now, wow, that really disturbs me. Half of all people wouldn't want to, you know, take a baby that could potentially be mentally retarded or have a lethal disease. And if you could just edit one gene with an injection and, and fix him, they, they don't want that. But I don't know. People, you know, a lot of people think that's playing with God, sort of. Um, Anyway, so half of people support something like that. But it says two-thirds of them opposed things like the chips to make – to enhance your cognition and the synthetic blood to make you stronger or have more stamina. So it's almost like a – you know, they're wary like 50-50 against even using gene treatments for disease, but – two-thirds of them oppose the performance enhancing. Like, once once you go above normal, people start to get salty. Right.
2: Yeah, it's like, it's like it's good in one area, but it's not good in the other, and it's the exact same thing.
0: Right. It's okay to make sub-normal up to normal, but even mm-hmm. though you're moving in the same direction from normal to super-normal, that part is not okay. And I find it's that actually like, uh, odd. Go
2: ahead. Oh, go yeah, ahead it's kind of like what they've done over the years uh, with, like, the IOC and always really changing the Uh, Testosterone to epitestosterone ratios, like it used to be years ago. Yep, yep. Yeah, it used to be like four to one, and then it was like you know, or uh, you know, ten to one and eight to one. And they just keep changing it. And and the reason is, is because over time, a lot of our, you know, biological and genetic variations of testosterone and what we can do, you know, nutrition wise or even pharmacologically speaking to enhance it, like all those things change um you know and, and how we perform changes. So like in one respect they have to change it. But it's like, okay, you know, somebody could just be genetically way out of the norm, be such an outlier that, you know, they're forced to change those types of things. So, you know, I can understand it in, in one respect, but yeah, it's just a lot of it is just politics.
0: Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. This says um there's some speculation from uh Tabitha, the author of this here. She says there may be less fear about genetic enhancements compared to, you know, the synthetic blood or the brain implants, nervous system implants, because the latter two are actually very new ideas. You know, they're artificial. They're they're implanted. It's sort of a newer concept, whereas uh, apparently, you know, she says that it's at least it's possible that people are, are slowly getting more familiar with the gene, the genetic therapy, you know, gene transfections. Uh, for enhancements and maybe that's why they're a little less weirded out by some of the gene enhancements compared to the um, you know the the implants and the the fake blood and whatnot Mm -hmm. Um, now this is interesting it says women tend to be more suspicious of any of these enhancements than men and not surprisingly people with strong religious commitments were more leery of these technologies and again i think sort of along the lines of tampering with nature you know god's work and all that sort of thing yep. so i don't know i i, I think that's interesting it, I, it's like to me it's like sports nutrition right clinical nutrition mm-hmm. takes sick people up to normal and sports nutrition the whole purpose of it i think is to take average people and make them better than average it's the same you're still moving in the positive direction mm-hmm. um, right. and you know what to me it really begs the question and when i took that course it's partly self-designed course actually but we have to define what normal is then, and like you were saying, John, like the the testosterone to epitestosterone ratio that they use to do <coughs> drug testing. As some guys come along and they're just sort of freaks and they just have you know altered ratios, they have to start to adjust their norms. You know, yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I, I, that's the real scary part. We start getting into movies like Gattaca and stuff like that. Like what is <laughs> what's normal? <laughs> you know, like what's what's acceptable. I don't know. And then this kind of bleeds into the third portion of this before I uh, turn it over to John here. Gene doping at the upcoming Summer Summer Olympics. It says uh, further on this topic, uh, they talk about this guy, John Horgan, who's at, I think it's a blog. I'm not sure, called Crosscheck. Anyway, examine the question of whether Olympic athletes are using gene doping to enhance their performance. And he goes on to explain that gene doping was a term invented in 2004, by the geneticist Lee Sweeney. Uh, It says athletes got very interested a decade after Sweeney inserted the IGF-1 gene uh, into mice, and their strength went up by as much as 27%. Oof, damn. Nice. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, but that's the thing, just like you said, Lottie. I mean, like, you've written about it even, like, in the 90s, but it just takes several years for people to kind of coin the term. Like, I remember, um, like, in the mid-2000s actually seeing some of the first Review articles on gene doping, and there's there's actually quite a few. Like Sports Med has had many really oh, excellent yeah. review articles on, yep. on gene doping, and some and a, even other higher tier types of journals as well. Well,
0: WADA, the World Anti Doping yeah. Agency, they have an annual conference about it that they started a few years ago because they're taking it seriously in order to stay ahead. You know of of what's coming down. Now this guy uh, that. Tabitha is reporting on what this Horgan guy is saying. He says not to worry. Apparently, we shouldn't worry uh, because even after more than 2,000 trials of gene therapy, its track record of success is nearly non-existent. Now, I'm not sure I agree with that. There are gene therapy trials right now, and there have been for over a decade. So I'm not saying that it's an explosion of success because they, you know, the guy makes a point in here if once it gets done safely, um, that's actually going to be a cause for celebration because that means we can actually start to fix some of these diseases. You know, Uh, I mean, if once if athletes are using it effectively to be bigger, stronger, faster, then that means we can start to help a lot of sick people as well. Um, The only thing I'm not sure I agree with is he's saying this. It's not really something to be concerned with in the near future. And I think we're farther along than he thinks. Um, Mm -hmm. That's all. (laughs) <laughs> that's all. When I see stuff like glowing mice because they inserted the the luciferase gene into them, you know, um, the firefly butt glowing gene, mm-hmm. you know, and and then the mice glow. I mean, that's proof of concept, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put a gene in there. Um, the, the thing for me is really how localized is this going to be? You know, like could, at one point, because I was reading some stuff that it, it might actually have local effects. Like you have lagging calves. You put a shot in your calf and boom. Big gastroc <laughs> you know. Uh, but of course, the risk would be that uncontrolled protein synthesis would be a nightmare. Cancer, enlarged heart and organs, you know what I mean? It had to be very specific to muscle tissue uh, and maybe temporary. Uh, you know, I don't know how temporary, but.
1: That, that has been the big poo poo that I've heard about uh, IGF 1 is that it's, sure, it's a great on signal, but it's an on signal for everything. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah Is the bad thing So non-localized use You know, I mean It could potentially just turn Oh, you know You have dormant cancer cells Or whatnot Well, not right. anymore No, exactly They have got a massive on
0: signal Yeah So <clears throat> John, man Are you eating? Are you digging into a bag of something?
2: No, I'm not eating at all, actually Okay no. so, <laughs> it's, It sounded like somebody's eating
0: <laughs> Yeah like, I, I guess that's the that? risk You listen to Iron Radio That's the risk Somebody's going to be eating I don't know.
2: Yeah, are you is any are you eating Phil or no. snacking? Uh-uh. Oh, okay, that's weird. I'm not eating anything. Know.
1: That's weird. Okay. <laughs> I wish I was eating.
0: You are right me too. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, no, good point Phil about that, right? That's and th- that was always a concern. IGF1 or GH was that oh, you know, you're indiscriminately growing tissues yeah. and you're going to end up with tumors and you know, all mm-hmm. kinds of scary stuff and I think it's the same thing with the gene doping, you know. I some of the pictures that I've seen of dogs not so much the cow, but the dog, uh, with with a myostatin blocked, you mm-hmm. know, dog. Yeah, you've seen. It, those? It's almost yeah. sad. Like he's he's like a greyhound. He has no body fat, and he has ridiculous muscle mass. But so much so that it's hanging off of him like saddlebags. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> but it's he almost looks sad. I, I don't want that, you know. And I've said this for years on this show, but the quest for size is over. In a lot of ways especially once we can do that right what made it exciting in the 80s and 90s was it was a sort of arms race it was like a size race and some people Mm -hmm. can get bigger than others and and now you know even on stage i know it's i doubt it's gene doping but with just with the advances in pharmacy yeah the guys are so enormous Mm uh that they start looking like each other i've gone on about it before sort of cookie cutter look and how do you even you know, it's not like, oh, here's Tom Platts on stage with the big legs, and here's the aesthetic smaller Frank Zane, and here's Arnold, who's taller with the peaked biceps and the huge pecs. Yeah, every, they everybody's all look kind of the now, same.
2: Most of them, yeah. Yeah,
0: I don't know. That's maybe why I'm a little less interested in keeping up on every muscle mag these days, you know, muscle and fitness and flex. And I don't even know if Muscle Mag International, that Rob used to write for, I don't even know if they're still. No, they
2: wouldn't. No, they went out of business a couple of years ago. Okay, because I, I was I write I wrote for them for about a year and a half, like late 2013 and all of 2014. And okay, um, and so they they went out of business and um, Muscle and Performance Mag, um, which is online um, and in print, because you can buy those print magazines at like Vitamin Shop. Um, they've taken they create new articles and they've taken some articles like. From muscle mag and kind okay. of you know, turn, turned them over and redone them and all that stuff
0: because so. i had heard that muscle mag was rebought. uh there was yeah. a couple of false starts about that but maybe that's what happened it just got sort of reinvented partly into something else i don't know
2: yeah and then like yeah. i've written for iron man um several times so they're there've been they've been out on um back for about i don't know Year and a half or so
0: Oh yeah um, Iron Man is the only magazine That I have not written for I think of, of yeah. The big ones I even did some stuff For Muscle and Fitness Hers once or twice <laughs> it just, <laughs> it, It's a little embarrassing But don't you laugh Because I think You've done that too Haven't you <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's good I like all that
1: stuff It's good Okay but, Yeah
0: it is um, Well and let's face right, it so, Yeah there's so many gurus And stuff I think it's really important To have some people Who know what they're Actually saying when they, When they write an article They're not presenting Opinion like it's fact you know, right, but. right.
2: Anyway, okay, yeah. Uh, so, uh, our next um, news blurb um, actually has to do with caffeine, and we've talked about caffeine um, quite extensively here on the show. And uh, this came out actually in this month's issue of a uh, journal on strength conditioning research. Caffeine attenuates uh, decreases in leg power without increased muscle damage. Um, so, this is from uh, Ribiero and colleagues. And so, caffeine ingestion, we know, has a, a very large ergogenic effect. It um, may also uh, obviously increase his exercise capacity, um, and when you can in- increase the exercise capacity, you can potentially, you know, train at higher degrees uh, of intensity. So this was a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, and like you know, when you just so people understand, when you deal um, in research supplements, uh, the best route to go in terms of a, a study and design is randomized double-blind placebo-controlled so th- so it means that the investigators nor the subjects really know which um, intervention that they get. They don't nobody knows if they get a placebo or um, the uh, actual caffeine uh, in and of itself. So they actually um, they actually had a low subject count. They had six male handball athletes. We've never heard that one before handball oh. <laughs> athletes. Um, so they did a placebo or caffeine the caffeine was only six milligrams per kg. Um, capsules on two different occasions. So, 60 minutes after ingestion of the capsules, caffeine levels were evaluated. Uh, they did vertical jumps. Uh, they did four sets of 30 seconds of continuous vertical jumps with 60 seconds of recovery between sets. Blood lactate and creatine kinase, which is a kind of a main indirect marker um, of muscle damage, um, was determined before and after the protocol. They found significant decreases in caffeine levels between – significant differences between caffeine levels between the two groups. Caffeine enlisted a little over 5% improvement in leg power compared with placebo. That sounds about uh, right, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely correct. And um, so the caffeine trial displayed higher blood lactates compared, compared with the placebo. Um, after protocol and vertical jumps, um, no difference in creatine kinase was observed between either group. So it indicates that immediate ingestion of ca- caffeine—we're only talking about six milligrams per kg—can reduce levels of muscle fatigue, preserve leg power during the test, um, and increase, you know, lactate um, responses potentially. So uh, no increase in muscle damage, but an increase that uh, six milligrams of caffeine certainly has an improvement, on, you know, on performance. And you can be train at high intensity. You know, this is. This is the stuff that we've talked about a lot on the show, particularly with you, know with you Lonnie, on all your caffeine research that you've done. This study, while it adds value to the literature, is really no surprise, right? right. I mean, you're not Agreed. really going to find a lot of uh, studies, wh- wh- however they go about doing it, with design, with caffeine, that don't show some type of positive effect, right? Um, and you, you know, know what, too? And, and it, it,
0: it, it, yeah. Well, let me add this. One th- one thing is I don't – I. I am not ripping on the authors, Rubiero and colleagues, but I was almost surprised this got to print when I first read it, because like you said, it's not a surprise. A six milligram per kg dose is a pretty standard performance enhancing dose A five to 10% improvement in power. Pretty standard. I mean, this stuff is already in the literature. And why would you think caffeine would increase muscle damage? But I will concede this. Then I thought, but it's true. If you routinely use caffeine And you get that super training effect And your you're balls to the wall 5 or 10% more than normal It does stand to reason that maybe You do more damage and you need more recovery Because you did more work Right, right but
2: so why are you doing Why could you It's like, that's the why, it's kind of like the how Well, I mean, when you ingest caffeine I mean, like, just like you said, 6 milligrams per kg Is fairly standard Your level of perceived exertion it's going to be higher, so you're going to want to train at a little higher intensity. So you have the potential to have more damage. I mean, if you're right, just going right. in there and, and and doing, you know, uh, just an arm workout, you know, you may not get as much muscle damage if you did like, you know, eccentrics and legs and stuff like that. So it's it's certainly you know muscle group and, and kind of upper or lower body dependent. Um, but yeah, yeah it's uh, it's really no, not much of a surprise with that study. But and they only they only had six subjects. Um,
0: You know, John, I have been seeing that a lot lately. I just reviewed a paper, and I can't talk about it yet, of course, but they had um, three of each gender in the study, and that's it. And I'm like, you know, not to sound like a statistician uh, policeman here, but that's an inadequate sample. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand sometimes research is expensive or even painful, and you can't just run through dozens or hundreds of subjects. Because, you know, you always hear that. Like I'll hear clinical people sometimes. I've heard a lot of dietitians say, oh, the sample size is too small. I'm like, you do it. You know, there's a lot to this here. But But, the thing
2: is – But that's so small.
0: Are you – you know, because, you know, when you said randomized, by the way, people, that's how how researchers get to – I can take a smaller sample. And in this case, it reflects hopefully all handball players, you know, in that – or my research, all, you know, barbell trainers – is because if you do it if you the the idea of randomization is that it's randomly plucked from the population of interest like a handball player or a lifter and that helps make it you know a valid representation of the whole target population right that's why it's randomized like that but at the same time i don't know i just I would always be worried. In fact, a lot of times I stop at the abstract level. I present a poster and just move on because I'm like, you know, we had a grand total of like, you know, less than a dozen people in this little pilot study. And it could be sampling error. You know, you could have an unfortunate string of events that make something look like it's happening, but you could have a couple of freaks on your hands to put it bluntly. I don't know.
2: Yeah, and well, I don't, I'm trying to figure out why they had such a low subject pool when caffeine has such a significant and positive ergogenic effect. It's like you would it's like people would almost be, you know, uh, uh, trampling over each other oh, yeah. to be in the study when they can use caffeine and you know? low risk, even uh, low
0: risk. Right. High performance, yeah. low risk output. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway, anyhow,
2: but uh, well, you know, it's a good
0: point. It's a good point. Like, I doubt Phil and you guys at your gym. I doubt that you think, oh, well, we're caffeinated, so we put in five percent more work, so we have to do something different with our recovery because we might have more muscle damage. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like it's very rubber hits the road practical, maybe. But anyway, yeah, it's still cool though. I mean, uh, coffee and caffeine. Now, not caffeine per se, but coffee has a lot of antioxidants and other things that would actually help with muscle recovery. That's one of the reasons I've really moved more toward coffee. You know, I had an old uh, mentor. She's like, Lowry, why don't you do some of these, you know, military caffeine gums that are much stronger than the commercial, regular commercial gums or straight anhydrous caffeine, do something more potent. I'm like, because coffee's not just liquid caffeine. It, coffee's yeah. not boring as long as you get some, well, you know, like the, the stuff that's naturally high in caffeine feel like that stuff that you're selling now. Yeah. You know, that's that'll kick your ass. Yeah. And it's not just the caffeine. Yes, that's the main player. But still, I mean, uh, yeah, when you take a caffeine pill, it makes you temporarily mildly insulin resistant, and that doesn't help mm. your muscle recovery. You know, but coffee, at least not acutely, but in the long haul, it seems to improve like glucose, you know, carbohydrate deposition into your muscles and all that kind of stuff. So all right, fellas, let's go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk about bringing up lagging body parts.
1: Okay, everybody, we are back, and we are going to talk about your forever lagging body parts and how to how to address those. Um, I don't yeah. know. One of the interesting things to me about lagging areas or weak areas or whatever you want to call it is the fact that once you fix one, you have a new one. So <laughs> it's this never ending yep. quest for That's fixing, true. Um, yep. which is yep. kind of neat. I mean, but uh, it yeah, goes along the lines it. of you, you you can never win. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Once you once you fix something, now something else is behind. But um. Yeah, I mean, just go into, you know, just some specifics, I guess. Right, yeah.
0: like, like, I think it's good to start with why does this happen, and, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I, think, I think maybe that most obvious one is genetics. Like, I used to know a guy, uh, Scott, I won't give you his last name, obviously, but Scott was a um, very built dude, um, not natural, uh, but his arms were always small, mm-hmm. and, I mean, of all the things you can have small as a bodybuilder, man— that one hurts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me wrong. I know we, we champion a lot of, you know, thick back, heavy torso, you know, because arms aren't going to make you look thick. I mean, you think about male models. They can have kind of big pecs and big arms, but they they still look like you could blow them over in a breeze, you know, and yeah. not very powerful. But at the same time, so his arms lagged, and he's like, what am I going to do? And uh, in one sense, I could, maybe it is genetic. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are certain – muscle shape things about like the insertion is it like your biceps are real short Mm -hmm. well maybe you're lucky and you'll get a high peak out of it but what if they're just short and you don't have a high peak Mm -hmm. uh you know so i think genetics are probably part of that um lifestyle
1: is a huge one i see now Mm -hmm. Uh, a giant one i mean you see i see people come in daily with a a, (laughs) not a body part but half their body severely lacking the, uh, the oh. part that's behind you, you know? oh no doubt like, and from, yeah. from from daily life from so much sitting and being at computers so they're they're severely internally rotated they've got really strong quads weak glutes weak hamstrings um a week back in general so
0: yeah they see, you know, see yeah, their back yeah so they, you they look train at
2: them. yeah you look at yeah great points you look at all the uh just the conglomerates of just like in the in advertising and marketing the millions of dollars that goes that go into advertising and uh, you know about low back pain and I'm not saying low back pain does not exist of course it exists and it's certainly multi-layered but one of the things that you, one of the, the the common thread for all those things and, and not even in a lot of studies and certainly not all but especially the ones that are advertised like on TV nobody ever talks about the underlying powerful Effect of just resistance training, mm-hmm. um, and how it just, and particularly as you get more training, as you get older, um, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, it's like if you if you start earlier in life, then you're going to continue it, but it's it's going to be really the closest thing to the fountain of youth that you're probably ever going to really get to. Um, you know, aside from maybe growth hormone and, <laughs> and some other types of things, oh, right. but anyway, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's just like nobody ever talks about resistance training. Everybody is just so weak, um, just like you said, <laughs> feel like weak glutes, weak hands, weak low back. And, you know, John, and it's like let me what? insert
0: let me insert something. I thought about having an episode, and it would be very hard to do this without sounding arrogant. I mean, all of us, but. Having an episode about how average weakness can motivate you. You know, it's like being yeah. motivated by, you know, sometimes you see somebody in the gym, you're like, oh my God, I, I, I got to go train back <laughs> because he's so, so weak. You know, it, I don't know. It's just, like I said, it sounds terrible. It's a good thing we're perfect, mm-hmm. right? But, and I say that tongue <laughs> in cheek. Uh, but yeah, sometimes you're almost motivated by that. Like people, yeah, they, they, you know, like you walk around and you see a, A man or a woman's leg and it's so soft and sort of um cellulite looking like you could Mm -hmm. poke your finger in up to the second knuckle there's no muscle tone at all Mm -hmm. and in a way that's bizarrely motivating to me and i anyway i sorry for the sidebar but i thought maybe we'll do a show on that at some point because that can almost disgust you to the point that you get pissed off and go in the gym so you don't end up like that
2: I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, speaking of like we were talking about, uh, you know, working on our weaknesses, and we're gonna I'm gonna hit up some stuff here in a second. But um, Mike Nelson, who's another co-host, you know, for the show, he sent he sent out a little email um, to some of us, and uh, he said one of his students said that they were going to go increase the athlete's posterior delt power as the main focus of the po- program <laughs> by doing <laughs> lateral raises. <laughs> mm. Send him to oh, Phil.
0: Or, or you. Uh, yeah. You uh, guys need to sit uh, these guys then, down. <laughs> yeah. I'm
2: just, um, I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, I think it depends on what types of people that you're working with. You know, with with older individuals and some people just need to increase like total body strength. I think what I think one of the better approaches to do is to kind of start globally and, you know, work the fundamental movement patterns and see what, you know, do some type of an assessment and see where they're weak at first. And it usually gives you a pretty good indicator of where you may need to start in some of their programs. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Some, some people just can't squat. And, you know, I've worked with a lot of people and a lot of people just, I mean, still to this day, even some athletes, and I have no idea, I still can't explain this. Like, I don't understand how people just do not know how to fucking box squat and actually just like sit back with their <laughs> hips and really just extend back because, Phil, you know this too. Most people squat to a box. They don't box squat and they're two different things, but they use them interchangeably. Um, and it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. So I think, you know, starting off with assessments and, and just doing just fundamental, you know, body weight movements. I mean, if you can't have, if you can't body weight squat, you know, then you need to go to, you know, regress it back and just do like assisted squats, like with a TRX or goblet squat or something like that. Um, but so it just depends on what people's goals are. But I think some of the top areas for weakness of most people, and we just touched on this glutes, hammies, low back. Um, and I think a really good thing to do, and I talk to a lot of lifters um, about this, and I do this myself. I do about a two to one, sometimes a three to one. Um ratio of back uh, mm-hmm. posterior work to, to anterior. anterior work, yeah. and I do anywhere from about 200 to 250 reps a week just with back work alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah and, it feels like that you know, too. So yeah, it's just you, you need to do two to one, or maybe three to one ratio of a posterior to anterior work.
1: I agree. I mean, that's what we do. You know, if if we're doing any kind of pressing, we usually do about double that in rows. And you're not talking matching intensity to intensity you know but volume (laughs) yes generally we get a lot of volume in for the back and then just weak areas in general if somebody has a weak area it's just add a little more in consistently over time for that area you know everybody wants to i need to fix it in four days well that's not going to happen you know (laughs) over the next six months let's say you have freaking i don't know lagging calves that's a usual one for people try doing some calf work a little bit every day i just posted
2: it yeah I just posted about that yesterday on uh, on my Instagram, and um, most people say. A lot of people say, "Well, you know, my calves aren't big. I don't have genetically big calves, or my calves don't grow. It's because they're not they're not um, focusing on greater times under tension, and they're not manipulating like the upper and lower lower portion of of, of the rep. Um, and so, what you can do is. Try doing like ISO holds, whether it's seated or standing cab raises. And you can even do this just with body weight alone. Sometimes you may not even need any weight. Mm-hmm. You can just do ISO holds at the bottom for like three to five seconds and or do an eccentric of three to five seconds going down and an ISO hold. But I would I would strongly suggest and recommend that you just do one or the other first um, because you're really going to be sore um, if you, especially if you've never really done it before, you, and obviously, you know, you're not going to really do, as, do as much volume, but you know, when you talk about like force absorbing properties, you know, with the calf musculature, it's always about the Achilles tendon. And so a lot of times you can kind of do ISO holds to kind of ease off those force absorbing properties. And you'll actually find over time, um, that your calves will actually start on, start to kind of grow and take on yeah. a mind of its own. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let me so. get in on this a little bit, but. Uh, on the assessment side of things, um, I agree. You know, if you look at someone's biomechanics and whatnot, you can kind of get the form follows function. You know, and now I'm thinking more from a bodybuilder perspective because maybe you do, maybe they legitimately do need to bring up their traps and, and rear delts or something like that. You know what I mean for a more powerful look or or whatever. But I think as part of the assessment. You got to do the psychological assessment too, like you know the readiness to change. It's called the Prochaska model. There's different ways you know to talk about this, but and that's to try to you know sit down with the person and get the idea. Are are they psychologically? Are they behaviorally avoiding back work or arm work or calf work because they have. They're small in these areas, Mm -hmm. you know. It's it's natural to want to go into the gym if you've got a huge chest or big arms and just do t-shirt workouts every day, t-shirt muscles, you know. And it's like, well, sometimes you got to have the discipline to like, fill to keep adding that volume, volume. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things I wrote down. I mean, you guys have already mentioned two things that I would focus on: eccentric work, right? Negatives because it's so micro traumatizing and muscle remodeling, Mm -hmm. Um, and and volume. Phil said something. God, I think it was like a year or two ago, and it sticks in my head. That Phil, you said something like, "Let's face it. If you do ten sets of ten curls every every time you go into the gym, you know, provided there's adequate recovery, you're going to grow. Don't tell me that's not going to grow." Yeah. And it's a good example of uh, extreme importance of volume. Yeah, you, know, you know, you've got to add the volume, and I like what you said, some, John, about s- stretching in the bottom position and stuff like that, because that alone turns on, you know, muscle growth in a lot of ways. Yeah, like but you can, mean, you can do that reps, with Any, you
2: know? yeah, you can do that with with any almost any type of exercise that you're talking about. You know, and, and so some people just don't know how to manipulate. You know, you, you can manipulate so many different variables and most people would try to just manipulate too many at one time. Mm-hmm. Do like one or two or maybe different areas of the body or just maybe even just try to just try the same exercise, but manipulate different parts of the range of motion.
0: Right. I mean, you, you
2: surprise like how difficult it is. I mean, even something like with like lat pull downs or neutral grip or narrow grip, you know, like hold at the top you know, for a second or hold at the bottom for like a, you know, a second or two count. I mean, you'd be shocked at what that actually really does. Well,
0: for me, it's like mind in the muscle, you know, like yeah, when I'm exactly. doing calf work, I naturally do that. I'll bounce in the bottom. We've talked about that before. Watch old Tom Platt's videos, how he's squeezing it mid-range or at the top or, or bouncing in the bottom. And you're right. I mean, whether it's eccentrics or some isometric squeezes or even rep speed, I read a paper years ago that stuck in my mind about the activation of, like, the biceps versus, like, the brachialis or brachioradialis. In a, I think it was in, a, like, a preacher curl or a scott curl. Uh, I don't remember the specifics, but the point was different cadence, different speed of contraction seemed to cause the EMG, you know, the activation, to be different. And so it, there's even, you know, variations in speed. So I think various angles, different speeds – all this stuff is is very handy, and I think any good coach is going to give you that variety, right? Just like variety is a principle in nutrition, I think it's a principle in in lifting too. Oh
1: yeah, you yeah. yeah. You go. To, I was going to go back to the assessment thing. I mean, we can't avoid the fact that we have a lot of people come in and they're like, "I have this this or that weak area," and they're just weak. You know, yeah, when, yeah. when you're just not in shape, you don't have a weak area. You know. And there's there's that whole group of people which probably sadly is about eighty five percent of the population. That's at a least. good point. They, jump, they just need they jump
0: to freaking they, move. They yes. don't need to do right.
1: concentration curls. They need to move their whole damn body.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. right? No, that's funny. They so, they jump to oh, I have a lagging body part. No, yeah. you are lagging. You're yes. <laughs> globally, yeah. like John said, globally yes. you lag. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's harsh. That's 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 bitter medicine, Phil. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's got uh, to be. But I told. think, like,
2: as you get, because um, I'm a big fan of the conjugate method and conjugate training system, and uh, I've been doing that for the last several years. And I think as you become more trained, um, and and that's somewhat arbitrary. I mean, you could be you could be training for you know 10, 12, 15 years and really not be highly trained. Mm-hmm. So, that's true. but when you're really highly trained, I think you have to do more variation over a, a more frequent period of time, like within week, biweekly, even over the course of a three to four week training cycle, you need more variation. And I'm not saying that you have to do a different exercise for every day that you go into the gym. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the, the variation in terms of really more of the assistance exercises, because like on upper body days, I do two back exercises, and even on lower body days, I, I always do one. Sometimes I'll do two as well. But um, you're always sw- kind of switching out back exercises. Is because when you get more highly trained, you adapt quicker. Um, and so, um, you know, you could change assistance exercises every like three to four weeks, um, or even just a different assistance exercise for the same muscle group. You know, whenever you go in the gym. But but novice and intermediate athletes and trainees. They don't really need to do that. Um, And this whole notion of novice, intermediate, advanced trainees, especially on the lower end of the scale, this whole notion of, well, they need to deload um, for like a whole week. Look, folks, if you're training twice a week, why the fuck are you deloading? Okay, (laughs) like you don't need to do that. You have like five other days in the week where you have recovery. Um, so you know, even if you train like four days a week, you still have three other days of recovery. Now, a lot of that is very detailed and it's customized, you know, to the person depending on like what they're doing. It is, yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're training twice a week and you're somebody who likes to, you know, get in and get out within 45 minutes to an hour because you have to go to work and you have families and you got kids, like, there's no reason to really deload. Um, You know, at all, especially if it's like maybe two, three days a week. But, you know, you get into the upper echelons of, you know, five, six, seven days a week, especially if you're on the top collegiate or maybe, you know, Olympic lifting platform. Um, you know, Olympic athletes. Then yes, you know, you need to have you know planned, um, you know, obviously recovery days, but even just kind of like a a purposeful like overreaching, so you can kind of really get into super compensation. I know that's a different topic, but um, you know, the whole notion of like you know deloading. Like I don't really take weeks off anymore unless I'm on you know vacation uh, where there's not much of a gym or something like that, or you know, coming off of a contest. Um even though I train like 4 days a week I still have 3 other days of recovery but okay if I do take a deload I still train maybe 3 days a week but the volume and intensity is about half of what right. it
0: was So this to, to pull uh, so, this back to lagging body parts that's yeah. it's like what like Phil was saying in you too that globally you're just undertrained You know, it's one thing to fuss about. Oh, I I, I'm weak in this or that, but you're right. If you're and I know what you're saying. Not training a body part twice a week, but just going in period twice a week, Mm -hmm. and then you're fussing about weak body parts. Mm -hmm. You know, you are not at a frequency level yet, a volume level to even think. I think probably about targeting size i mean unless you have an injury or but I, i'm just thinking more along the lines of visually weak you know visually lagging in size or mm-hmm. or what are you doing you know you, you're just not you're not lifting enough the volume requirement isn't there and you know what you might yeah. have to put in more volume for that that's genetically stubborn say. group right? yeah that's
2: what i was gonna say like because phil talked about volume and it's like well if, you, if you're have a lagging a weak muscle group it's it's likely and the odds are you got to do even more volume especially on the front end or even to maintain a higher volume for those lagging and weak body parts or areas, you know, to to really kind of step up their game in a sense to really have performance increases kind of across the board. Right. Um, So a lot of times you have to do more volume up front and some people feel like they have to, if they're doing three sets with something, well, they got to push it up to like 15. I'm like, no, you know, just double it maybe, or even just add a set or two. Yeah. You know, yeah, like if practical. it's three, well, then do five. Well, then then do five sets for several weeks, you know, and then go up to maybe six. Or even if you want to go to 12, you know, sets, then you can break it up yeah. throughout the week. You know, so it's just there's there's multiple ways to really do it.
1: Yeah, that's like, I mean, people are, well, people are stupid. <laughs> I mean, Flat <laughs> out. It's like the people that come in, they're like, man, my squat sucks. I squat one day a week, this and that. So I'm going to try squatting seven days a week oh, you're going to go from one day to seven. Right. Let's, let's try two, you know, (laughs) and then we can go from there. Everybody wants, and it's just like when people go on a diet, you know, they go from eating Twinkies and hoes to nothing but broccoli and chicken breasts. It's like there's steps in between.
0: Right. Right. You know,
1: let's try that. Let's try something maintainable. Right. And okay, let's see what you get. I mean, this is where I definitely fall in line with, with with Windler's attitude. It's like, I want to do as little as I can to get the maximum benefit. You know, I mean, that's, just smart <laughs> find out the minimum you can get away with to still make progress to your goals and then do that forever
2: and that you takes know?
1: years
0: that yeah. takes years
2: to be able to get to
0: yeah
1: and yeah. it's like now I'm just gonna continue this
0: for infinity well because then you go from oh. you go from inadequate mm-hmm. volume like the, yeah. the two days a week like John was saying to every single day and if you've got a weak body part you could then you could be overtraining it, making it flat and glycogen depleted and stringy looking. You know, it, it, it's you know because you know, you're jumping to the other extreme. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah.
1: Then you're bad because you're injured and you hurt all the time. Well, oh, injured?
0: Swallow, yeah. You know, so. uh, I just wanted to add one thing too is, I, I we'd be remiss I think if we didn't talk about when we talk about body parts as opposed to muscles. Some body parts are very complex and some just aren't as much. And like when you guys mentioned back. Like, so the biggest muscles on your upper body are in your back. Lats, traps, and they have multiple origins and assertion kind of points and when you look at that. And so it really begs for variety, accessory work. You know, um, I would encourage listeners to go back and look for the episode with Joey Antonio, uh, gosh, more than a year ago. And he was talking about how you activate satellite cells, you know, baby you know, uh, muscle cells that wake up, stem cells that wake up and help change the, the size or maybe, maybe even the shape of a muscle a little bit by hitting it from different angles and that kind of stuff. But I just wanted to throw that out there, right? Your biceps is a pretty straightforward, you know,
2: um, talk about muscle architecture, like for a second, because you said some muscles are very simple, right? in their architecture and their insertion points, then you have a muscle, Like glute medius, right? So it's actually a glute medius is a major abductor of the thigh, but their anterior fibers actually help to rotate the hip medially, and its posterior fibers help to rotate the hip laterally. So sometimes, even in a given given, uh, muscle, their fiber arrangements um, can be different, have different effects um, on movement patterns. And so,
0: right. No, right. um, Okay. Well, I know Phil's, Phil's got to get, so... Uh, no, that's good Perfect. stuff. There's a lot to chew on, but I think some of the advice that you guys said about pick one of these things and do it for several months yeah. at least instead yeah. of trying to get too fancy with different cadence, you know, isometric, eccentric, more volume, more frequency, you know, um, pick something and kind of latch yeah. onto that and see if you can get some changes.
2: Yeah, and uh, as before we wrap up, the uh, Rio 2000 Summer... Uh, Summer 16 Olympic ceremony was last night, and it's going on for the next 17 days. So, if you need some inspiration and in how to increase your gains and slowness in life, then look no further to the Olympics.
1: Yeah, sounds and good. The Rus- and the Russians aren't there, right? <laughs> right? No, hey, that's uh, some right. Of,
2: some of them are, but a lot yeah. of them are, right?
0: yeah. So,
1: all right, guys. Until next week. All
0: right, see ya. Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So, for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.